Lugano is now under a state of emergency. It's been a From the direction and the wing has swung the fire in several directions. Well, what's up? I want to welcome you to Liquid. I'm Pastor Tim, and we are in part two of our current series called 2000X on the Bible prophecy, current events. What we're doing is we're looking at ancient scripture to help us understand the current headlines and the trend lines that we're going to see in our future. And today, I want everyone right now to take it out. Take out your thinking cap. Remember doing this in third grade? Put your thinking cap on, because I'm about to sprain your brain. I want to begin with a, with a real quick primer on, um, on radical Shiite Islamic eschatology. Can we say that together? Radical Islamic Shiite eschatology. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. I had written in here, no one will say anything. But you tried it. Good for you. You sounded smart, at least. That was good. That may seem a strange way to begin. I mean, we're in a Christian church after all, but if you're going to understand the trend lines of ancient prophecy, you need to get a handle on the world's fastest growing world religion that really informs not only the majority of the Middle East, but vast regions of Asia and beyond. So let me begin by going to our magic map here. I want to show you a clip from this past fall when Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad visited New York City. He was addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations, and in this clip I want you to listen carefully to how he begins his address. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. All praise be to Allah, the Lord of the universe, and peace and blessing be upon our master and prophet Muhammad and his pure household and his noble companions. O God, hasten the arrival of Imam al-Mahdi and grant him good health and victory and make us his followers and those who attest to his rightfulness. It was immediately following that opening prayer that the delegations from the United States, Israel, and Britain got up and stormed out of the United Nations Hall. Now, why is that? Thousands of Muslims begin their prayer with these words, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the universe. The word Islam, it literally means, that word means submission in Arabic, so a Muslim is one who submits to God. And there are about 1.5 billion Muslims worldwide. Islam is the second largest um, religion in the world next to Christianity. It's the predominant religion in Middle East, Asia, and particularly in Northern Africa. 
And it is the fastest growing religion in the world. About 23% of the world's population, or one in four of people, are Muslim on, on our world. And in his prayer, he said this. Did you catch this? And peace and blessing be upon our master and prophet, Muhammad, and his pure household. You've probably heard of Muhammad. He is the founder of Islam. He was born in Mecca. That's present-day Saudi Arabia. He was born around 570 A.D. And at the age of 40, while he was medicating, meditating, medicating, medicating in a cave, it's like popping him back. No, he was meditating. Sorry, don't, oh my goodness. I meant no disrespect. He was meditating, and he received what he believed were revelations. And those revelations were captured in the holy book that you've heard of probably called the Quran. Yeah, it's regarded by Muslims as the word of God. And at that time, there are about 360 like gods and goddesses in, in the Arabic pantheon. And Muhammad chose the name of one of them, Allah, to be the true God. Now, when Muhammad died, here was the problem. The Islamic world, it was like a Baptist convention. It got split into different denominations. There were disagreements. And what happened is 90% of the Islamic world today are called Sunni Muslims, and 10% are called Shiite Muslims. And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is Shiite, and here's why that's significant. Because it's one thing for a Muslim leader to begin his address with a generic prayer to Allah, but then he says, O God, hasten the arrival of Imam al-Mahdi and grant him, what's the word? Victory. Make us his followers and those who attest to his righteousness. See, Shiite Muslims believe that there is an individual right now alive on earth by the name of Imam al-Mahdi, who was concealed hundreds of years ago, and one day he will be unveiled as the Muslim Messiah at the end of time. And the sign of his arrival is victory. And some of you are like, well, victory in what or against who? Victory in a global war against Jews, Christians, and all other infidels who do not bow to the name of Allah. It's called jihad. And that's why his prayer, on behalf of everyone seated in the General Assembly, grant him victory and make us his followers, cause some problems. You understand why Israel, the Jewish nation, the United States, and Britain stormed out. Ahmadinejad is driven by the belief that by launching a global war to annihilate Israel, he can hasten the arrival of the Islamic Messiah. At a conference in 2005, that's when the president issued his now infamous threat to wipe Israel off the map. Now, at this moment, I need to call a timeout, and before we go any further, I need to say this. This is not meant to smear, indict, or condemn all Muslim people by any means. In fact, Ahmadinejad's beliefs are not widely held by the vast majority of moderate Muslim people in the world. 90% are Sunni, he is Shiite, and they believe actually in the peaceful, nonviolent practice of their faith. It is critical for you today to dis make that distinction. Do not make a sweeping, uninformed stereotype and you start looking at all Muslims with the stink eye that would be racist and ignorant here, okay? So it's important for you to dial into this. He represents a radical form of Shiite fascism, which is toxic, virulent, and understandably disturbing to civilized ears, including many Muslims today. The reason I'm highlighting this to start is that it's unprecedented for a regime with such a radical theology to wield power over an entire nation, especially one with nuclear ambitions. In response to Iran's threat, Prime Minister Tony Blair said at the time, I have never come across a situation of the president of a country saying that they want to wipe out, not that they've got a problem with or an issue with, but want to wipe out another country. Can you imagine a state like that with an attitude like that having nuclear weapons? That question is no longer hypothetical. 
If you caught it, this past Wednesday's New York Times had a front-page article entitled, Iran Shielding Its Nuclear Efforts in a Maze of Tunnels. And it went on to detail how difficult it's going to be to uh, monitor Iran's nuclear efforts because most of them are built in hundreds, if not thousands, of underground tunnels throughout the hills of Iran, hidden from prying Western eyes and monitoring. And suddenly, you see all the ingredients are there for an epic clash of civilizations, religious zealotry, hardline political ideology, nuclear ambitions, and the money to do it. Iran happens to be, of course, the world's second largest producer of the world's oil supply. They are sitting on a literal ocean of oil, which makes their claim to need nuclear fuel all for, for civil, you know, energy purposes all the more dubious. All of this to say, the table, through the third lens of prophecy, is being set for a collision course of civilizations, two fundamentally different ways of seeing the world, belief in what will happen next, and all of it, of course, on both sides, under the banner of God. What in the world is going on? I mean, is this, is this just new, you know, this is new life in the 21st century. It's chaotic. Or is it part of a larger trend that indeed is ushering us into the last days? Today, we're going to connect the dots between oil, Islam, and Israel, and we're going to see how the current rumblings in the Middle East will indeed impact our future and most likely our children's future as well. And uh, I just need to call it out again, just to look on some of your faces. Some of you are like, awesome, man. I see you. You're taking notes. You're dialed in. Others of you are like, man, I should have worn the Pence diapers. This is scary stuff, man. Doomsday, what the? Remember this. I summed this up last week. Jesus' instruction about the end times are basically, pay attention, but what? Don't freak out. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> because it's easy to freak out, right, when you focus on alarming trends in our world. But this is the purpose of prophecy. Remember, Jesus asked his followers, he said, how is it? that you don't know how to interpret this present time. Because out of his generosity, we learn that God actually issues warnings or forecasts. He gives predictions of how things will unfold leading up to the return of Christ. And so Jesus said, be on guard, be alert. You don't know when that day will come. Humility here. He wasn't trying to be ominous or create fear and panic, but he invites us to look at the signs of what's happening in the world through this new lens not the lens of politics or economics, but the third lens of prophecy. And today we're going to look at the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 38, which gives details about a future war that God says will unfold in the final days leading up to the return of Christ. So if you take your Bible with me, you can follow along. Last week we learned that God loves all peoples, especially the people of Israel. Prophecy began with that ancient covenant God made with Abraham, father of the Jews. In Genesis 12, he made this promise. Remember this, I will make you into a great what? Nation, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was a special promise. This was very personal. God said, Israel, I choose you out of all nations to be my what? Do you remember the phrase? My treasured possession. Absolutely, Deuteronomy 6. And the symbol of that covenant was this promise of land, the holy land, where we see so much of the strife in the Middle East focused today. Genesis 15, 18 tells us, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and he said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Here's a picture of those boundaries. If you remember, you'll see Israel is at the epicenter. Jerusalem is the epicenter of Israel and it is the most hotly contested piece of real estate in the world. Scripture says Israel was the ancient starting point, and it will be the future staging ground for everything to come. 
particularly the events of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Now, here's the deal. What we're about to read is 2,600 years old. That's old, okay? And it's amazing because you'll see Ezekiel gives a prophecy about this, in, in chapter 32, this thing called this Valley of the Dry Bones. It's basically this forecast that Israel one day is going to be restored physically and spiritually back to its land. Beginning in 70 AD, Jews were scattered from the four, to the four corners of the world, and they spent the next 1,900 years scattered and suffering greatly. But God made this promise in Ezekiel 36. This is where we left off. He said, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries and bring you, let's say this together, what? Back into your own land. And this is exciting because this is the prophecy some of you have seen come true in your lifetime. On May 14, 1948, when the state of Israel was reestablished once again in its homeland, unprecedented in history, that is setting the table for what's predicted here in Ezekiel 38, which is called the War of Gog and Magog. Can we say those two funny names? Gog and Magog. Sounds like something from the World of Warcraft. I know, track with me here, okay? This is where prophecy gets a bad rap, by the way, because here's the deal. This is a very unique piece of literature that uses like weird names and symbols that are sometimes difficult to translate. I used to teach English before I was a pastor. I would tell my students that you have to understand what genre a piece of literature is to really unlock the meaning of the text. In the Bible, for instance, we have history. That's a record or factual accounts. We have the Gospels. Those Gospels, what that means, they're, they're eyewitness testimony. We have the Epistles. Those were letters written to specific communities. We have Old Testament law, legally binding Jewish code. But then we have this genre known as prophecy, which often uses this like apocalyptic language to look out into the future and predict what's going to happen in symbolic terms. It is not worried about exact dates in chronology. A lot of times it's like the telescope goes, zooms out into the future and then zooms back into the near future, all within a couple of verses. That's why it's confusing. So as we unpack this, we do so with humility because although we see some of the threads here coming together, the goal of all, any prophecy is to help us see the big picture of God's plan of redemption for all of mankind. You understand? But this now you're about to read is a central plot point in that picture as Ezekiel predicts that once Israel has been regathered back into her homeland, she will be attacked by a group of nations that is hostile towards the Jewish people. And that's where we begin, Ezekiel 38, verse 1, which reads this. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, prophesy against him. And that's where most people quit and say, I'm not doing devotions today. Right, kind of weird, like I don't even know where these fairy tale lands are, whatever. Just work with me. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm against you, O Gog. So there's an enemy here, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, and then look at this weird phrase, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed in a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Look at the list of nations. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them all with shields and helmets. Also, Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togarma from the far north with its, all its troops, the many nations with you. I realize this sounds like we're ordering sushi. Just work with me on the names, okay? It's a little bit... Get ready, be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you, take command of them. Now look at verse 8. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out of the nations, and now all of them live in safety. Last verse, you and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up 
advancing like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land. Do you get all that? Shake your head yes, or you're just kind of like, just go, I don't know where I am, what that was. The picture being painted here is that in future years, a huge coalition of countries, what Ezekiel describes as this great horror, a storm, a cloud, will descend on Israel and attack her. Now, which countries are we talking about? Here's the key to prophecy. You always begin with what you know. You start with what's identifiable in modern-day terms, and this is easy. Take Persia. Because up until 1935, the country known as Persia is really modern-day Iran. Okay, That's literally the name of it. It's very easy that we know it's a hotbed of anti-Semitic, radical Islamic activity. Ahmadinejad, actually, he's just a mouthpiece. Because the supreme ruler, the leader of Iran, is Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He sets the agenda for the Islamic Republic. He's the source of that bold declaration in 2005. He literally said, anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. And they're not alone. Hezbollah takes its marching orders from Khamenei too. Their base of operations is in Lebanon. You probably saw they've lobbed a few rockets into Gaza this past week. Now, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was asked what would happen if Iran did indeed attack Israel one day. At the time, she was in the middle of her campaign for the presidency of the United States. Here is what she said. Well, the question was, if Iran were to launch a nuclear attack on mm -hmm. Israel, what would our response be? And I want the Iranians to know that if I'm the president, we will attack Iran. And I want them to understand that. Because it does mean that they have to look very carefully uh, at uh, their society because whatever stage of development they might be in their nuclear weapons program in the next 10 years, during which they might foolishly consider launching an attack on Israel, we would be able to totally obliterate them. That's a terrible thing to say, but those people who run Iran need to understand that, because that perhaps will deter them from doing something that would be reckless, foolish, and tragic. Woof, that is some tough talk coming from an orange pantsuit. <laughs> no disrespect. Um, here's the problem. <laughs> Honestly, the problem with that kind of muscular response is it is a basic misunderstanding of the prophetic nature of this growing conflict. See, Ahmadinejad is not like Kim Jong-il or some crazy dictator who's like, you know, megalomaniacal and wants to hold on to power at all costs because they don't believe in an afterlife, not at all. He is a Shiite Islamic fascist, which means he believes that the Muslim Messiah will return only when the world is plunged into carnage and chaos. You catch this. He believes it's part of his role to create the global carnage and chaos that will help bring out the Muslim Messiah. So in other words, the threat of bombing Iran is not a deterrent. It's an accelerant. He has 72 virgins waiting for him in the afterlife. How do you deter somebody who is convinced it's his destiny and role, his God-given mission, to annihilate Judeo-Christian civilization, which Israel and America represent? See, this is the riddle, the conundrum of Iran. And this Persia is where prophecy says ground zero will take place. Again, the majority of Muslims, I need to say this, do not share this radical ideology. They do not share his apocalyptic ambitions. And that's why you're seeing all of these riots and unrest in Iran. Have you seen it this week? There's all this like, kind of rioting against that regime because moderate Muslims are fed up with this. They want to live in peace. I was talking after the service last week, someone in our congregation said, I'm an Iranian-American. I emigrated here nine years ago. I'm so glad you're talking about this 
because this is not how we want to live, but that is the face, and we hate where it's being steered by this regime. Never before has a radical regime had anything been able to do that kind of, had that power. And this is why Ezekiel predicts Iran will be one of the key countries to strike Israel in this coming battle here in chapter 38. Now here's the deal. Iran will not be alone. I'll go back to the magic map. You'll notice that it refers to Cush and Put. Cush is Sudan, Ethiopia, parts of northern Africa will likely be part of this coalition. And Put is modern-day Libya, which you may remember from the news, controlled by the strongman Muammar Gaddafi. And so in other words, in the last days, all it's saying is there's going to be a coalition of Islamic countries who come together to attack Israel when she is settled securely in her land. Are you tracking? You're starting to look at current headlines through this prism of prophecy. Here's the twist. Here's the big twist. Iran is not at the head of the pack. This is where it's fascinating. There's another country predicted to lead the attack according to Ezekiel. You'll notice the prophecy began with those funny words. Son of man, as you set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them. I'm using the NASB here. This is going to help you with linguistics. It's like, who is, who's like this Gog and Magog? I see it all over the place. Is this like the Cheech and Chong of the ancient world? Who is this? Gog ain't a name. Gog is, a, it's most likely a title like czar or pharaoh or president. So it's not identifying someone who is named Gog literally. It's predicting the rise of a ruler or a prince or a president who arises and rules over the land of Magog. Now, where's Magog? Look at verse 15. Go ahead. Look down your map. It says, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. And if you take a quick check on any world map, you can see here the northernmost country from it is Russia. You're capturing this. You're getting this? That's what Magog is. It's literally all these, the, the, the countries that are stands. I call them the stands. Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, where Borat's from. You guys know this. These are all the... The former, sorry, if you're like, what the? Uh, a few of the former Soviet satellite states, literally, there's no doubt that this is a coalition. And you can even see it linguistically. Watch. Rosh or Russia. Meshach or Moscow. Tubal, that's to buy the Siberian oil city on the Tubal River. This is what's being connected here. There is no doubt about this. I, I, I actually need to be careful about that. There are some very thoughtful scholars out there who say, you know what, this actually refers to a larger region that includes modern-day Turkey. So again, humility and order here. But there's little doubt that Ezekiel's referring to the nation we know as Russia. You're never going to find the word Russia or Soviet Union in the Bible. Joe Rosenberg notes in his book Epicenter, by the way, which I highly recommend, fantastic book, he said, there's widespread agreement among Bible scholars and prophecy experts that Magog and Rosh do in fact refer to Russia and the lands and people of the former Soviet Union, that's the stands, and that Gog is the dictator at their helm. Now the question is, who exactly is Gog? Who is this strong man of Russia who's going to arise and lead this coalition? Let me show you his picture. <laughs> Pay attention. I literally was talking about this with Pastor Tom. He's like, man, some people are going to be tuned out at this point. It's not Ivan Drago, okay? I must break you. This is not him. This throw back to the 80s, seeing if you're paying attention. Follow me here. Right now, Russia, follow me, back, back, everybody, okay, we're all done? Back. Right now, Russia is led by Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, who served eight years as Russian president. Under his leadership, it's actually been stunning to watch, just to sober it up a minute, because he has made it his goal to roll back a lot of the democratic freedoms that came when communism collapsed in the 90s. 
He has consolidated power in the Kremlin. He is actually a former KGB, the head of KGB, and begun suppressing political opposition. He's actually jailed journalists, and he now has said that the new Russia is not going to be this Western-style democracy with elected leaders. He's actually employing uh, certain leaders and actually beginning to consolidate power, and a lot of people are concerned in Russia that he's beginning to use oil and nuclear technology to leverage it and actually gain his superpower status. Now, like it or not, Time magazine named Putin the person of the year in 2007. And in the article, A Tsar is Born, Dmitry Simi said, he is emerging as an elected emperor who many people compare to Peter the Great. Now, here's the deal, guys. I'm not saying Putin is God. Don't start tweeting that out there. Oh, my gosh, Tim told about No. What I'm saying is, if you pay attention and you begin connecting the dots between Ezekiel's prophecy with current headlines. You begin viewing global trends through the third lens, 2,600 years. You will see the tables being set for this event. Check this out. Take these two key nations, right? Russia and Iran. Up until even five years ago, most people would have scoffed at the idea of them joining forces. Like, Russia and Iran? No way. Don't be ridiculous. Everybody knows because Russia occupied northern parts of Iran during the 90s and during the, the, the 19th century. Russia has always been hated by the Iranians. Iranians have always been hated by Russia. But these are interesting times, aren't they? And prophecy sometimes makes strange bedfellows. On October 16, 2007, we witnessed something never seen before in our lifetime. As Putin personally visited Tehran to formally announce a strategic alliance. Put that picture back up there, would you? Take a look at this. This is a handshake scene around the world. Now, if you go back, I'm going to go to our magic map because I want to let Wolf Blitzer from CNN actually share the full report. The Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad getting a powerful new ally in a standoff with the West. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is now backing Iran's right to nuclear power and warning the rest of the world not to use military action against Iran. Our Middle East correspondent Anish Rahman is watching this story. Anish? Wolf, Vladimir Putin did not mince words today, voicing strong support for Iran. They spent the day side by side, two presidents challenging the West by affirming Iran's right to nuclear power. When it comes to the nuclear issue, the Iranians are cooperating with Russian nuclear agencies to reach a peaceful objective, and all the countries involved have expressed their idea that peaceful nuclear activities must be allowed. Russia is, of course, a veto member of the same UN Security Council looking to sanction Iran again over its year-long defiance of a UN deadline to stop enriching uranium. The chances of that now seem slim, and with a close to $1 billion deal in place for Moscow to build Iran's first nuclear power plant, the Russian president warned the world against attacking the Islamic Republic, vowing that no Caspian Sea country would be used to hit another. By any measure, this was a historic trip, the first one since 1943 of a Kremlin leader. Back then, it was Joseph Stalin sitting side by side with U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, three allies eager to end World War II. This time, a much different message from Vladimir Putin, one of support for Iran and, in turn, one of great concern for the West. Wolf? Anish Rahman reporting for us. Uh, the summit in Tehran, by the way, consists of the five nations bordering the landlocked Caspian Sea. Uh, there's Iran, along with Russia, and three other former Soviet republics, Azerbaijan, 
Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan. Strategically vital, the Caspian is one of the world's richest oil regions. 2,600 years ago, a prophet named Ezekiel predicted this realignment of the nations. And in our lifetime, we're seeing it come true before our eyes. I want you to imagine the military might of Russia joining forces with the radical Islamic extremism of Iran. You talk about a match made in hell. Currently, Russia is negotiating with Iran to build as many as 20 nuclear power reactors. And all told, over 1,000 Iranian nuclear scientists have been trained in Russia or by senior Russian scientists. Why? Because Russia is desperate to have a counterbalance to American power in the Middle East. When, when we invaded Iraq and, and we're trying to plant a democracy there, that's the goal, you compound that with the, America's alliance with Israel, it makes America the most influential nation in the Middle East, hands down. And to counteract that, Russia's leveraging their nuclear know-how to make partners of Muslim nations, of which Iran is the first among equals. Consider these recent headlines from the Associated Press. Russia agrees to $1 billion arms deal with Iran. Kremlin ready to defend Iran. All, all of this is, is part of the larger strategy of Putin for Russia to regain its superpower status on the world stage. Now, am I suggesting that these two leaders are the ones who are going to tip the first domino of Ezekiel 38? Maybe, maybe not. One thing is for sure, they are setting the table for what's to come. Reminds me of that scene of Lord of the Rings. You remember that when Gandalf, he looks out into the distance, he sees the storm clouds gathering, and he says, the board is set, the pieces are moving. We come to it at last, the last great battle of our time. Do you, you, you see how prophecy works? It begins helping us connect the dots and gives us a God's eye view of the world, and we get to see how this fits together. Some people ask, now, how could this, how could this happen in our time? Ezekiel predicts of Russia, he says, I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army. And that image is a fisherman's image. They used what they knew in prophecy. And the image is like a fish with hooks literally in its gills. And you're kind of pulling it and moving the fish all around. It's a picture of how Russia, whose fate is being inextricably tied to Iran, may eventually be reeled in or brought into this international conflict. Imagine this scenario. Iranian scientists continue their nuclear oper you know, their, their program, which they've said we're going to do whatever sanctions, doesn't even matter, we're doing this. And Israel bombs it preemptively, which they've shown the appetite to do when they bombed the Osirik Iraqi nuclear reactor in 1981. They did it. Immediately, Russia would back Iran's right to retaliate, and you figure, well, if Iran and Russia join forces to retaliate against Israel, wouldn't the U.S. then be joined forces with Israel to defend them? Not necessarily. First, our troops are pretty tied up right now in Iraq and Afghanistan. And secondly, an Israeli attack of overwhelming force would likely spark international condemnation, especially among Muslim nations. And in that case, America would be very hesitant to rush to Israel's aid for fear of inflaming even more anti-U.S. Arab sentiment. And if that was the case, Israel would stand all alone, exactly as Ezekiel predicts she will in the last days. Imagine this tiny nation of 6 million immigrants surrounded in a sea of 300 million enemies. If you look at verses 15 and 16, you're going to see the outsized odds of this battle. Look at it. It says, you will come from your place in the far north, you and your many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In other words, the whole world is going to be watching this, probably on CNN. And they're going to say, oh my gosh, this is going to be a bloodbath. Israel, 
will be annihilated. They are beyond hope. Just to get an idea of how one-sided a war with Russia and Iran partnering together against Russia, compare these vital statistics. You're looking at a horde of 1.5 million active troops right now versus 168,000. That's 7.2 million square miles versus a country that's about the size of New Jersey, 8,500 square miles. The battle, it seems, will be the most lopsided in all of history. And scripture predicts that not one nation, including America, will come to the aid of Israel. She will stand alone when she is attacked by Gog and Magog. And yet these are exactly the kind of odds that God loves. Because this is the moment. And God has a purpose in this coming conflict. I mean, I, I understand. Some of you right now, you're like, holy smokes, what? This is a dark moment. And some of you are like, I, I thought I was coming to church, and I walked into this, like, geopolitical conspiracy convention. What is this, man? Holy <laughs> What the? Watch. In verse 16, God reveals it. He says, in days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land, so that what? The nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Though scary, this battle has a sacred purpose. It is God's preordained way that he is going to reveal his power to all the nations as he comes to save his beloved people, his treasured possession, Israel. See, there is hope in all of this. God's love for his people is unconditional. It does not depend on their faithfulness to him. God is faithful to one thing, his own word and his promise. And when his chosen people find themselves with their backs to the wall facing outsized odds, I want outsized odds. I want you to think right now the Red Sea. This is that kind of situation. God loves to show himself strong on their behalf. Why, do you ever notice how he does that in our life? He lets us get in these situations where like a vice is squeezing us on every side and we're overwhelmed and we can't get out of it and we can't think our way out of it and everything fails. Why does he do that? Because when he comes to our rescue, then there's only one person who can get the credit. God is behind this, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. Are you ready for a comeback? Watch with me. Ezekiel 38, verse 18. This is what will happen in that day. When God attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused. God gets hot. Is the anger of the Lord burning against the nations, trying to annihilate his treasured possession? Why God gets hot, you've got to watch out, because he doesn't bring bullets to the battle. And never watched the movie The Untouchables? There's a scene in there where Sean Connery, he's face down with all these gangsters who have knives, and he says, oh, isn't that just like a wop to being a knife to a gunfight? And he pulls out these guns. I'm not trying to make light of this because this is incredible, but the God of Israel is not going to be using conventional weapons in, to win this war. Four of them are predicted. Verse 19 says, In my zeal and fiery wrath I declare that at that time there shall be what? A great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. The first weapon in God's arsenal is a mighty earthquake that is going to literally shake the foundations of the Middle East. We've had some big earthquakes in California most recently. This will be nothing like that. This will be epic. On the order of the earthquake that sparked the tsunami of 2005, Verse 21 says that natural catastrophe will actually cause confusion. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I want you to imagine all these different nations with their different commanders and customs and tongues and different languages. And scripture says when this earthquake strikes, the sheer chaos and confusion, 
will cause these armies to actually turn on one another. Does it sound improbable to you? There's a historical precedent in the book of Judges where a band of 300 Israelites led by Gideon faced down 120,000 Midianites who God literally has them turn their swords on each other. Today we have a name for that. We call it friendly fire. And God will use friendly fire to destroy these armies without Israel even lifting a finger. The third weapon in verse 22, Ezekiel says, I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. In other words, he predicts some disease will break out, infect whoever is surviving in those troops and render them impotent against Israel. And then finally, God will unleash a shock and awe air campaign. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and his troops and on the many nations with him. The picture is of total decimation of Israel's enemies. This will not be a fair fight because no matter how great our man's plans and strategies and military might, they are child's play to the power of the living God. One commentator put it this way, he said, every force of nature is a servant of the living God and in a moment can be made a soldier armed to the teeth. Men are slowly discovering that God's forces stored up in nature are mightier than the brawn of the human arm. And, and, and I get it, guys. I get it right now, right now, right? You feel it, do you? These predictions seem like almost outlandish. They're almost dreadful. They can maybe can you roll your eyes like, this really happened? Who would have predicted the tsunami in Asia in 2005? That a quarter of a million people would be wiped from the face of the map in 15 minutes by a single wave. Ezekiel says this will be a dreadful day and the battle will be over before it even begins. It's sobering stuff, yeah? If you read Ezekiel 39 this week, you can read the aftermath of it, but the Bible says in the last days, guys, that this will be the start, the start of God's salvation of his people Israel. And honestly, it is one of the compelling reasons we are privileged to stand by her and support her as a nation. The war of Gog and Magog um, will come true. Will it, co it will come to pass. The question is just when. And the answer to that is, we don't know when all this will occur. Some scholars believe it could happen in our lifetime, especially as we see these new alliances emerging. Others say it will be after the rapture of the church. Once those in Christ are actually removed from the earth, we'll watch the war of Gog and Magog from the portals of heaven. We'll talk about that next week, the rapture and the hope we have as believers. But one thing is very certain, the table is being set. You're starting to connect the dots here? You track with me. You're starting to see the world through this third lens because it is literally prophecy is God's eye on today's headlines. And he's trying to tell us something. Do you catch this? This prophet is trying to tell us something urgent. See, there is a purpose behind all this predicted destruction and chaos, folks. It's not pointless like, oh, this is why I don't like Old Testament. It's all bloody and uh. Verse 23 states God's purpose eloquently. He says, and so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And there it is again, what? I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. In other words, God tends to use this judgment to reveal himself to all the nations of the world. Again, today, that would have been possible even 20 years ago. 24-7 cable and television satellite coverage. Not a human eye will miss this as it's broadcast to the world. Again, that's a first in history. And here's my question. How do you think the watching world will respond when they witness this miraculous salvation of Israel? How do you think they'd respond? The final verse of Ezekiel 38, the final verse. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Most likely, 
there will be an unprecedented global spiritual awakening across the world, particularly in Israel. I want you to imagine your enemies surround you with overwhelming power, bent on destruction, and God decimates them in a matter of minutes after the shock and awe. My guess is your, your response would be joyous, jubilee, celebration, what we would call worship. And many Jews will most likely come to a first-hand knowledge that the God of Israel is not silent, but is in fact their Savior. I imagine synagogues will be filled to overflowing and many Jews will come to a saving knowledge of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Likewise, how will Muslim people react? Is it possible, is it possible that God will use this global event to rattle people out of their spiritual apathy and ignite a wave of salvation that crosses political, ethnic, and religious boundaries and brings a sweeping return of all peoples to the God of the Bible? Would that not just be like God's heart? to ignite a global spiritual awakening of Jews, of Muslims, of skeptics, of Christians, of believers, and use this cataclysmic event to draw millions into his family before the rapture of his church. Let me be clear about this. I believe the rapture could occur at any moment, and I wouldn't be surprised in any way if it occurred before Ezekiel 38 comes to pass. The question is, would you be ready for that? Would you be ready for that? I'm not trying to play the fear card. Would you be ready? Have you decided who the Messiah is? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that nothing that happens in this world can shake you? I'm not trying to appeal to you on the basis of fear. I've always hated that the people do it. Oh, you know, we're going to... I realize this can be upsetting and it's heavy stuff, but you are not meant to leave here today and see tomorrow's headlines with a sense of fear and dread. God says, when you see this through my lens, you're supposed to look at this and be joyful and expectant. And you're like, really? Yeah. It's intended to increase your faith. In the Gospels, after Jesus, I'm going to leave you with this final thought. In the Gospels, after Jesus tells his disciples about the future that awaits them, they come to him privately. They take him aside and they say this, tell us, um, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And you see, they were unsettled by all that he was teaching. Why? Because they were human It involved suffering and painful predictions, and they were scared. But Jesus answered them. He said, watch out, no one deceives you. You will hear of, let's read it together, wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. He's like, there's an inevitability to this. There is more, this is more than the cycle of history. It's part of God's sovereign plan for all mankind. He goes, nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Look at all he lists. Are these not the things we're seeing today? Wars and rumors of wars? Check. Nation against nation? Check. Famines? Check. Earthquakes? Check. So with all this stuff happening and more promise to come, why wouldn't you freak out? And then Jesus throws a curveball. He says, all these are the beginning of, everyone, birth pains. And this perspective makes all the difference. It will determine whether you leave here today fearing the future or saying, man, tough times ahead, but I can't wait. Let me put it this way. I want you to imagine you're in the hospital and you hear a scream coming from the room across the hall from you. Scream of anguish and pain. It makes a big difference if you know you're staying in the maternity ward and not the oncology department, doesn't it? That's what Jesus is saying, perspective. With all this pain, all this anguish. You think earth is in its death throes. Jesus says just the opposite. It's birth pains. It's a sign of new life on the way. Context is everything. 
It's not about birth. It's not about death. It's birth. It's the kingdom of God about to break forth. And behold, God's about to make everything new as we're going to see in Revelation. That's the good news of the gospel for all who believe, for Muslims, for Jews, for Christians, for Arabs. So understand this. If you are a follower of Jesus, he's your Lord and Savior, you're a member, not of a nation, you're a member of the kingdom of God. And your enemies may say, you know what, death to Israel, death to America. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, do you know what we say? Life to Iran. Life to Muslims. Life to Russians. We bless our enemies. We don't pray for their destruction. We, we pray for their salvation. Amen? We want them to become our brothers and sisters as we await the return of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who didn't crush his enemies with a fist. But when he walked the earth, he died in their place. He hung on a cross for people who hated him. Not out of ideology, but out of radical love. So take heart, Christ says. In this world, you will have trouble. But behold, I have what? I've overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this moment. <clears throat> thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray right now that you'd speak to men and women, Father, who are here, who don't know where their future lies. Lord, we don't know what the future holds. What we know is exactly who holds this future. And I want to thank you right now that you haven't left us guessing. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He has created the universe. He has come to this earth. He has died in our place for all of our sins. And he has been resurrected to new life and now puts his spirit in our hearts so that we may have new life with you forever. Father God, I pray right now for men and women who are listening, who are even in this room, that your spirit would speak to them, Father. Maybe this is their first moment that they actually recognize that they are in need of a Savior. Father, I pray right now that you would confirm that for them. If that's you, you want to take a moment just to pray. Say, God, I invite you into my life. I need a Savior. And Jesus, I want you to be him. This is my moment. I'm coming to salvation and belief in Jesus Christ. If that's you, just take this moment between you and God. Shoot your hand up right now. Just say, this is my moment. I wasn't expecting this today, but right now, this is my moment that I am accepting you, Christ. This is my moment. I pray, for, Lord, right now, I pray for the people in our church who are even here today who are coming to faith in you. I pray for those listening online who will download this podcast. Lord God, I pray that they will hear the spirit of love that casts out perfect fear. I thank you that we can look forward to the future with bold confidence because of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said together, amen.